A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Andor Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John. And this is our podcast for the Star Wars Disney Plus show, Andor, Season 1, Episode 8, Narkina 5. In this episode, we'll be discussing our overall thoughts on the episode before moving into a scene-by-scene breakdown followed by listener feedback. Before we get started, a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com and we'll get to those questions in the next episode. If you want to keep talking Star Wars with us sooner, join the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description below, and at baldmove.com. Of course, we have our new Patreon. If you like what we do and want to directly support us, head over to patreon.com slash lorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. So whatever source works best for you is good for us. So just as long as you're enjoying the podcast, we're happy. Our upcoming shows are Andor, which you probably know if you're here, uh, The White Lotus starting November 2nd, where we're doing full coverage with a recap, and The Wheel of Time whenever Amazon decides to give us a release date. We're also doing a new Tolkien-based podcast where we read one story from the Silmarillion once a month. The first episode will come out at the end of November, and it will cover the Aina the first few pages of the Silmarillion. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Um, but back to Andor. We were going to cover this show by major story arc, but now we're going full episode coverage for the rest of the season. John, um, what's the, what changed? What gives? I got my droid to do some of the work. Nice. I like that. I've automated some processes that have made it a lot easier for me to edit, and uh, that's been our bottleneck the whole time. So I'm glad that I have less editing to do because I prefer to talk about this stuff with you. Did Deidre order a uh, uh, an audio processing droid along with her code <laughs> droid in this episode? Look, she was given a blank check this episode. <laughs> and she's cashing it. All right, John, should we get into our overall thoughts for the episode? What did you think of episode eight? I thought it was great. I mean, there wasn't a ton of action, of course, but there was a ton of political intrigue, of character development. Um, Diego Luna is just a masterclass in nonverbal performance in this episode. I, I have a hard time because our, our superlatives are just getting so superlative-y. Like, how many more words can we use to describe <laughs> how great this season has been of this show? Yeah, 
Now, every episode has sort of a different thing that's great about it. And uh, I, I just can't believe it's still going strong on episode eight. David, what are your thoughts on it? All right. So for my overall thoughts, I've got a bunch of little notes. So you've just got to indulge me here because I just feel I got to catch up on a few things. Sure. My first shout out is to my boy B2, who is now in the opening animation sequence. Uh, I noticed him a couple of episodes back, but I was really excited to see that they added uh, our friend B2 there at the end of that little uh, droid sequence, you know, all the masks and all that kind of stuff. Nice. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, in the, in the world of vibes. So like, you know, last episode we were talking about some severance vibes and one of our listeners wrote in and, and they said that they were getting some Loki vibes as well, which I'm totally picking up on. I was also getting like a lot of Mr. Robot vibes with this sort of ambient music and the pacing of the show. And then of course this episode, like it's all squid games. The thing I really enjoy just from these vibes, though, I don't know, it just gives me like when I when I pick up vibes from a show, um, another show that I liked in the show that I'm watching. I don't know. I really enjoy that. It just feels like cozy. Uh, so I'm, I'm always sort of um, uh, liking the little call outs and the little hooks that uh, are happening in, in other properties and on the television. Yeah, there's definitely some not so subtle messages that are bleeding through. This show, politics, power, criminal justice reform, like there is some like straight up, like I, they're, they're, they're not trying to be, I don't think, intentionally social justice-y. They're just trying to tell the story, but you can't help it when that stuff resonates back through. Um, oh, well, that's what makes a good story is if it resonates back to the real world. Yeah, totally. And, and in this episode, I definitely was uh, feeling some of that stuff. Um. Another thing that is really making me happy in this with this show it are the scene transitions. The editors, we talk about masterclass, beautiful, amazing, all you know, all these like you know, big words. This show and how they're doing the scene transitions is incredible. And I'll call out some of them when we get to um, our our scene by scene breakdown. But I just want to like get everybody to th- be thinking about what scene transitions do how the editors can bleed energy from one scene into the next or amplify key ideas or feelings from one scene into the next. Um, what they're doing here is just blowing my mind. And there was one where I even shouted out loud when the scene transition happened. I was so excited by it. So big thumbs up to the editors for this. I'm curious what that one was now. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. I'll, I'll definitely call it out. Um, the music <laughs> the music in this show is doing so much work to create the the sense, the 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 emotional tenor of the show. Like when the synth music started kicking in, like I don't know that we've had synth music before in Star Wars, but when we cut into the first scene, uh, I think it was in Nymos, the the um, the Miami Beach planet that uh, Cassian uh-huh. was on, with the flying uh, birds, like flamingo tile birds, and that's when we sort of got that like Miami Vice like opening shot sequence. Ever since that that synth vibe sound came in, the whole energy of the show has changed, and I just really love how uh, how well they're employing music um, in this. And then my last point is I'm really happy that we know going into this that these are broken up into mini story arcs. 
Because on an episode like this, I think if we listen to some other podcasts and we, you know, talk to some folks in the Discord, I think we'd get a lot of people going, oh, this was a boring episode. There was no interact, you know, it was, you know, there was no action and, you know, what was really accomplished here. But if we know that eight, nine, and 10 are set, you know, eight is going to be setting up to nine, which is going to be setting up to 10, then I think it mitigates a lot of that conversation and people gnashing their teeth about, hey, what was in this episode? It wasn't that great. There wasn't a lot of action. I don't know what they're doing here. Like this way we can really manage our own expectations and we can really settle into letting the storytellers take us on the journey that they want to take us on. I think if you made it to episode eight of Andor, you are not tied to action scenes to pull you into a show. Right. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, I'm I'm so glad to see this in the Star Wars universe because that's what it was always missing. Right. Yeah. Because it was always like, when's the next lightsaber duel? When's the next high fire battle? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this more when we get into the ISB stuff, but I saw somebody comment online, and I love this comment, which is, well, now the people who are just like, well, all the Imperial soldiers are idiots, can sort of shut up a little bit, and, and we can have a complicated <laughs> villain, uh, which is awesome. And, yeah. uh, it, and I hope that that starts to trickle into the mainstream movies that Disney starts to put out again, because we know that there's more Star Wars coming, maybe not next year or the year after, but it's coming. There was um, one movie which shall remain nameless where an imperial officer was to made made to look very buffoonish right sort of at the very beginning of the movie and i mm -hmm. i had a lot of problem with that um the joke wasn't that funny you know the shtick that they set up was you know it was, it was cute it it wasn't i don't know what you're talking about so you might want to tell me <laughs> <laughs> i blanked all the names of them but it's where poe uh, dameron is pretending to like call the star destroyer at the beginning Oh, yeah. Okay. And, um, gotcha. Uh, you know, and it was just like, and it was Hux, I think it's Huxley, just making him look sort of incompetent and buffoonish. And it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we can, we can make fun of the Nazis, you know, the space Nazis in that way. That's fine. But it didn't give me any sense that the evil empire is actually evil or an empire, you know? Uh, and I think what we're like, just what you're saying in this show, we're, we're getting that vibe here. Like, these are competent driven, highly trained, motivated people in service of, you know, of the empire, and um, they're effective. Right. And somebody like Partagaz recognizes competence when he sees it. Yes. And, uh, and you don't necessarily see that throughout all the Star Wars movies. So this is really fascinating to watch. What was the, uh, there was some meme or joke that went around a number of years ago about like, the Stormtrooper Academy and them learning to shoot and things like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Hopefully, we've yeah. Hopefully, um, Rogue One and and uh, and and Andor can break that uh, cycle a little bit of of uh, buffoonish stormtroopers. We shall see. You know, it's funny because uh, I had sent you an article maybe a week ago where uh, somebody was saying that Andor was doing very poor numbers yes. on Disney Plus compared to Book of Boba Fett. Yep. And um, and Obi-Wan. But then apparently that was a disproven article. Really? Because it was about social media engagement. Okay. And it was about total social media engagement during the Rings of Power and House of the Dragon right. uh, season. <laughs> and so it has absolutely no representation of how it did compared to Obi-Wan and um, Book of Boba Fett, because those came out in seasons where there wasn't a... a flooded market yes. of fantasy shows right because the the venn diagram of who's watching what uh certainly is going to overlap here between uh house of the dragon yeah. lord of the rings and and 
any sort of Star Wars thing. I have talked to just chit-chatting with some other colleagues and other people, you know, who aren't in the podcasting game, just just other people who are watching shows. And both Lord of the Rings and Andor were sort of getting backburner treatment, like, oh, we're really busy right now, or we're watching this one thing and we can't watch this other thing because we've got too much going on in life. And so I don't wonder if if both Lord of the Rings and, and Lord of the Rings, I think, had a lot of heavy lore, like, oh, well, you didn't read the book, so you're not going to enjoy the show kind of vibe to it. And where Andor might be also suffering from the fact that there was a bunch of sort of action figure drama coming in front of it. And so people are a little bit turned off. So it's sort of swimming upstream a little bit. So I don't... Right. Nobody trusts a Star Wars show anymore. That's really... I really do wonder how much that vibe is in the in the marketplace uh, for, you know, getting attracting people to come to, to Andor. And so hopefully, you know, with this podcast and all the people who are also enjoying the show, you know, that'll amplify a little bit towards the end of the season when people are saying, no, no, this has been a good show and it is worth the time investment. Right. And I hope the lesson they learn is there are grownups who want to watch Star Wars. <laughs> that's right. So make us some shows, please. Yeah, right. Uh, that's I think that's a big thing is, is like, yeah, my, you know, having Luke cruise around in an X-Wing was was cool when I was, you know, eight, nine, ten. But now, like, I yeah, I want to see Cassian Andor, um, you know, doing his thing and and other people of his ilk. Well, David, I think it's time we talk about Cassian a little bit. I think so. Uh, so let's get into this scene by scene breakdown. You want to start us off? Sure. So first off, we have Cassian and the other prisoners being sorted by home planet and then sent to transport ships to serve their sentences. Cassian is sent to Narkina 5, which appears to be unknown to him. What'd you think of the scene, David? Oh, I love that they just picked up exactly where episode seven left off. Like literally he's been sentenced. He's gone through some sort of little processing and then he's just like, right out into this uh, lineup and getting sent onto these transports. Um, so they, yeah. they're not wasting any time in moving the storyline forward. Right, exactly. No, Cassian's story is moving forward. It's amazing how little happens in Cassian's storyline this episode, but also how much happens. Yeah, totally. Did you catch the um, visual cue there going from when they pan back and they showed that sort of amphitheater-like structure where they were, where all the shuttles were parked, and then they flipped over to the next scene? I did not. Oh, yeah. Really great visual language there. And again, this interconnected storytelling that these um, uh, showrunners are putting together. But the, that scene of, of Cassian being sort of, you know, this, he's being sort of put through this machine and then we go to this other machine where Karn is already sort of installed and, you know, living in and amongst it. It was uh, really, really, and visually, there's these sort of circle and line motifs that are happening in both scenes. And so uh, as it transitions over, it, it really carries the, the thought and energy of, of this giant uh, universe that the Empire has constructed, where we're just sort of little elements in this giant um, apparatus. Right. And we should note that as we summarize this, we're going pretty much by which people we're looking at. Yeah. Uh, and we're not really always noting where uh, things were a little bit more intermingled. So we're, we're going between Cassian, Karn, and Dedra yeah. in these scenes, which is a, a very cool way to do this. It's kind of amazing that they have this irony of the audience knowing that the Empire has Cassian. Yes, yes. And the Empire is also looking for Cassian. Yeah, it's really great. 
um, uh, you know, like there, yeah. And, and I think you could probably find some modern day law enforcement cases where somebody's already in custody, but they're, they're not looking for the, under the right name or using the right profile picture or something like that. And they've already got the person that they're looking for. David, does the empire not have biometrics? I am little, I was, I am a little surprised that there's not some sort of DNA matching going on here. Some mitochondrial matching machine. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't go down that road. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the only thing that sort of challenged my suspension of disbelief. I was like, hmm, I'm pretty sure you have some kind of <laughs> some kind of biometrics that identify this guy as Cassian, but that's all right. We're going to we're going to let that go uh, because the episode was good. Otherwise, do you want to take us into the other part of this montage? Karn is approached at his cubicle by Imperial officers who turn out to be working for Dedra. She reveals that the ISB is aware that he is running unauthorized searches on Cassian Andor. She then asks him what was missing from the report on Ferrix. He claims he was not allowed to read it. Deidre goes to retrieve the report. A lot of bureaucracy here. Uh huh. So Karn was the guy who saw everything firsthand. He wasn't even allowed to see the report. Right. What was missing. And I think that Dedra is sort of seeing the missing links in the chain here. Um, and that's her whole mission is, how do I get these people to talk to each other? How do I get these people to trust each other enough to get something done and to track down these rebels? And it's kind of fascinating because we've talked about this idea that we pulled from Tolkien that evil cannot trust itself and so will yeah. fail. Yeah. Um, and I think that you have that in the Empire. And I think that Dedra is competent and understands that they have to at least figure out how to work together if they want to solve this big problem. Unfortunately, she doesn't. Well, as we soon will learn, uh, she's not so interested in working with Karn. But that's another uh, another point we'll get to in a moment. Uh, I do love the editing in this sequence, going back and forth between Cassian and Karn, and uh, sort of comparing and contrasting them both in their worlds. Uh, again, just really masterful storytelling. What's amazing is that you see two different reactions to prisons of sorts. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, Karn in one prison, Cassian in another kind. Right, but Cassian is falling deeper into despair. Yes. And Karn is falling deeper into anger. He's got big incel energy. <laughs> he does. He really does. He's going to clear his name. He's going to clear his name, he thinks. Yes. All right, so next up we have Dedra delivering a report to her ISB officers about the missing Imperial technology and a likely overlooked conspiracy of rebels with a mastermind codenamed Axis, which we know to be Luthan. Cassian is identified as the missing link, so Dedra proposes an expensive surveillance operation, which is balked at by Colonel Wolf Ularin, but then endorsed by Partagas. Yeah, so um, turns out that this Colonel Ularin is a notable figure in the Star Wars universe. We got some feedback about that, and uh, even just a little bit of um, basic uh, internet reading. Uh, you know, people are all over this one. So apparently, Ularin was an officer who was in the meeting with Tarkin and Darth Vader on the Death Star. Oh wow! In uh, Episode Four, A New Hope, and he was the only officer there in a white uniform. And then he got plucked out into some of the other uh, titles. He might have been in some books and some other of the animated series. And then they've brought him fully back here. And it seems like we're getting a little bit more of him now uh, this time around rather than just 
in the the one walk-on scene that he had last episode. Yeah, I wonder what kind of role he's going to play because he seems to be someone who is tied to the bureaucracy, very much so. He's the one who goes, look at the budget. But Deidre goes, well, it's pretty expensive to lose that equipment, though, and aren't you just kind of putting off the bill? That was a snappy comeback. I, and she was like, after she said it too, and she he looks at her, and she's like, oh, geez, did I just cross the line here? But she's got a serious uh, titanium spine, and she holds her ground. Like I said last episode, if you're going to challenge a superior, you better be prepared to show your work. And Karn was not prepared to show his work where Dedra is. Right. And um, also, what was her counterpart uh, who was trying to come after her? Blevin. Yeah, Blevin was, he was just pointing fingers and had some sort of uh, sketches on the margins, whereas uh, Deidre's really coming with the receipts. She's, she is prepared, and uh, she knows what she's talking about. Right. So what's going on on Arkina 5, David? Well, back on Arkina 5, Cassian and the other prisoners who've been labeled able-bodied leave the transport ship barefoot. The wardens say they don't need weapons to control them, and then they demonstrate the electrified floors. What did you think of this? When the feet first showed up, I thought we were in House of the Dragon. (laughs) But after that, it was terrifying why the feet were out. Yes. Um, I I mean, I was not expecting that at all. And uh, it was such a shocking thing. And I was like, why do they not have weapons? Do they think that they can just intimidate them? And then they were like, no, we have a weapon. It's just in the floor. Yeah. When they were riding in the shuttle and the, and the shuttle officer was like, you know, get your shoes off. It's like, what? I, I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't make any necessary sense. Like, I thought, is that like to prevent them from having, you know, uh, some object that they could do themselves harm or, or you know, try something else? But it, it didn't really make sense. And then it was like, oh, or, or when, the, when the other guards came up the hallway and they, they gave us visuals of the boots that they're wearing and you're like wait those are some weird you know those are some funky ass boots in star wars yeah it was a very strange scene until it wasn't and then it made a lot of sense yeah and a very effective (laughs) very terrifying and very effective yeah i mean they have to pull them off the floor afterward how uh switching gears slightly how beautiful was that shot of narkino 5 as the shuttle was going in it was just with the planet side on the back of it, it was uh, the, you know, whatever parent planet that it's, it's in orbit to. That was just a gorgeous visual. Yeah. I mean, the TV shows of Star Wars have basically just started to match the movies, which is very interesting. And I wonder what their long-term strategy is with that. Right. Well, you know, I, obviously visual technology is getting better and better, too. So right. I think it may be cheaper to get better visuals up front. So in our next scene, we've got Karn is interrogated more by Deidre. He gives her little useful information. She tells him to stop looking for Andor, but he pleads with her to let him help. She threatens him that if he searches for Cassian again, he'll be speaking to someone else. Pretty nerve-wracking there. I love that Tetra did not give in to Karn. Uh-huh. Karn needs to be told no. Right. And he needs to understand that the answer is no. I don't think he did. Right. But um, he really needs to be told no. I mean, it was such a fascinating interaction. And Dedra and Karn have so many similarities, yet so many differences. And they played yes. out so well in this scene. 
What did you think about this, David? I was, uh, so I was, you know, really excited. Obviously, I've been pushing the theory that the two of them are going to come together at some point. And I think the B-level type of show, if this were another show, she would have taken him up on his offer. Oh, they'd be married by now. Right, exactly. Like, he'd be wearing, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, pseudo ISB type uniform, and he'd be in there clicking, clacking away at, uh, you know, helping hunt down, uh, hunt down Cassian. But this show was pretty bold in that, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to close the door on this, you know, on this particular uh, ex- escapade by, uh, by Karn. Um, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen next with him. I don't think we're done with him. But I thought it was a really bold choice and something very well within her character. She is a top flight officer. And while Karn was a great deputy inspector, he's not ISB material. So why should she take him up on his offer? Was he a great deputy? Because he completely disobeyed orders and he got a bunch of his comrades killed. I think he thinks he's a good deputy. He certainly told us in this episode. He did find Cassian in two days. I mean, he had a whole team of people working on it. But he did, you know, initiate and and spearhead that search. He did, but he also got outsmarted by a very ill-equipped criminal. You know, I don't think I don't think Karn Karn may be intelligent and he may have a lot of drive, but he's he's naive and inexperienced. He's got no street smarts, as John Mulaney would say. Right. Whereas Cassian has been, you know, he came up hard, right? <laughs> like, right. you know, he's, he's, and he's survived. He, you know, he's gone through a lot and survived. So he's very smart. And then he had Luthen as backup, who was even smarter than both of them. I don't know if Dedra has more street smarts, I guess we would continue to say, than Karn does, but she has a broad enough sweep now with this surveillance that yeah. she's going to have a similar effect anyway. And I think that that's, um, I, I think that's her point. I think she knows her limitations, whereas right. Karn was just gung-ho to get in there and get his hands dirty. You know, it's, a, it, it's, it's not uncommon uh, for people new in careers and things like that, yeah, you know, to, to be super gung-ho and, and to not listen, listen to the wisdom of their elders. Here I am, a Gen Xer, saying that, so, um, and or at thelorehounds.com. Shut uh, up, old to, man. <laughs> exactly. Um, so how good, though, is this writing? Like, there are these pivotal scenes that we've had. Up, I, I actually want to go back and catalog all of these. But Karn dropped one of these uh, just absolute dialogue bombs. Can one ever be too aggressive in preserving order? Yikes. Whoa. Yikes. Like, that blew my mind. That, from a writing standpoint... Wow, like that is fire. I think Mon Mothma has some thoughts on that question. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I love, but I think this is um, Karn's thesis. Yeah. Right? This is the thesis of his character. And, and he's trying to get that heard by the ISB, by Deidre, but she's just not having it. Uh, she's, she may agree with the sentiment, but she doesn't see that he's got the chops to, uh, to play the game at her level. Well, I think that Karn is so laser focused on Cassian that he's missing the big picture. Whereas, good point. Dedra is not interested in Cassian, so to speak. Really good point. She doesn't care if he lives or dies. He just, she just wants to use him to get to what what she thinks of as Axis, 
Yeah. And uh, so, you know, Luthen. She wants to gain access. Right. And she wants to use him <laughs> as a tool to get to the rebellion and crush it. Yeah. Much bigger goal. Yeah. No, I totally see that. That's a, that's a really good point that Karn is just motivated by, well, like his mother said, <laughs> like his mother said, look at me. I'm an individual, right? You know, Karn wants to be noticed where Deidre uh, has the, uh, you know, the, the interests of the empire at heart. So Cassian is on Narkina 5, heading into his little prison cell, and he's brought to the assembly line, where he's greeted by Kino Loy, played by Andy Serkis, who also played uh, Snoke in the sequel trilogy. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so this is his second Star Wars appearance, and I'm wondering if they're connected, but they could just be, you know, double casting. Yeah. So he's the head of his unit, but he's also a prisoner, so they have this sort of self-managed ecosystem in here. And Kino explains the competition to Cassian and impresses on him the seriousness of keeping up the pace. Cassian looks overwhelmed as he watches his table complete a unit. This is exactly where the um, Squid Games vibe came in, right? Mm. Like, you know, here they are. They're, you know, there's, there's rewards, there's punishments. It's been gamified. You know, uh, what does Kino say? I play, uh, I play the rooms, you play the tables. Yeah. Like, really, you know, seven, seven layers, you know, seven factories, you know, seven floors, et cetera, et cetera. Like, really beautiful symmetry. And again, pointing to how structured and organized the empire really is and how big a machine this machine, this apparatus really is. And of course, they have the oldest man in the universe. Next to Cassian. <laughs> on their team, right. And you're seeing how this brutal job is just taking a toll on him. Well, if you had seen Squid Games, you would have seen the parallel right there, too, because that's oh, really? uh, one of the yeah, one of the main characters there is uh yeah. I'll say no more, but there's a there's somebody who's who's challenged in a similar way. Interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean you see how you know this table is doomed from the start. This table is not gonna win this competition. There will be right. no flavor in the food. No, not not today. And during the whole um, entry sequence into the factory floor, how good, again, was the editing? Because at every shot, as Cassian was moving, you know, processed through the system, I really felt like he was documenting and cataloging all of these important things. Like, okay, the boots are kept here, and here's a trooper trying to, you know, struggling with getting his shoes on. And here are the two armed guards, the guys that actually have the, you know, the blasters, uh, where everybody else just has the shock rods. And, and you can just, the way that Diego Luna's acting on, the, on his face, just passively observing, but like sort of taking note of things by how he looks at something. And at the same time, the way that the editing and the shot angles are giving us the little visual clues of the things that Cassian, at least in my head canon, is documenting so that he can use those later on. I mean, I don't know if they're going to go for a prison break or not. I have no idea how this is going to play out. I really don't, because um, they're just the, the way that this plot is rolling out is it's, it's hard to predict. But I just really feel like Cassian is just taking it all in, and he's just like when he was on um, uh, what was our Aldani, where uh, Kel was like, okay, is he right-handed or left-handed, and he was able just to like click through everybody. And he's already got him sussed out. I feel like he's doing the same thing here. He's sussing yeah. out this entire facility. 
And I think that the writing and the acting actually reinforces this whole observation tactic because they keep telling him to keep his eyes front and they keep yelling at him to keep his eyes front. So you know, based on their yelling at him, that he is letting his eyes wander a little bit. Wow, I didn't even pick up on that one. That's a really good, yeah, that's totally cool. Did you notice or what did you think? Like, this is an all-human prison? It does seem like that. I didn't notice that until you said something, but I I don't recall seeing any non-humans. Maybe it has to do with the electrified floors not working on every species. (laughs) Could be. I think my headcanon is that they have maybe moving people around by species and and so factory conditions and working conditions will be optimized for the different statures and yeah. whether you have six digits or you know forearms etc cetera, etc cetera. could be that's a good head cannon all right we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back So our next scene, we cut to Mon Mothma hosting another dinner cocktail party where she declines to drink a worm. She uh, attempts to get some votes for her new bill, and Tay shows up to say that the new laws are making it difficult for him to move money around and may be impossible. Uh, Perrin looks on suspiciously. Yeah, so Perrin is super suspicious in these scenes. Right. He's either up to something or he wants to help and she's not letting him in. One or the other. Or perhaps he just thinks that she's cheating on him with Tay. Yeah, that's my general vibe, is he's, he's getting suspicious that they might be having an affair. When she walks away after they were standing in front of the, the window and talking to that other couple, and you know, we see on her face sort of a, a look of uh, a little bit of uh, a grimness, a little bit of concern, and Perrin is looking back at her like, hmm, like, what's going on with my wife? A lot in the scene. First of all, this scene kind of convinced me that this seven, eight, and nine, and I know that this is not one of their official trilogies of episodes, but I feel like in seven, eight, and maybe nine, they're telling Mon Mothma's arc as well. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Maybe there's an arc within an arc. Yeah, I like uh, it. Because Mon Mothma did not have, was she, was she, did she have any screen time before episode seven? She was certainly in, I think she was in four, was it four or five? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, because I think she was planning with Luthen before Aldarin happened. Right. Uh, but she really didn't get much screen time, and we certainly didn't no. see her playing politics until episode seven. Right, and we're in there really building her out now. Right, so I think that they're making this sort of Mon Mothma's mini-trilogy, because I almost didn't care what Cassian was doing half the episode. Right. Because I was much more concerned with what Mon Mothma was doing. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay, cool. Again, the acting that these uh, actors are doing is incredible. Uh, yeah. The, just the, the looks, the laughs, the, the flow and banter of a, of a cocktail party where you really don't want to be there with these people. And I forgot how nice you are when you want votes. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> that was a brilliant line. Uh, and the worm drink, I, that was a great little touch. Oh, my God. What was that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody who's a little bit more steeped in the lore can, can let us know. Let us know what Chandralan, Chandralan uh, worms are. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it changed the color of the drink and everything. It was really quite interesting. Mm. Are they gummy worms? Because then I'm in. Yeah, probably. That maybe maybe that would be it. So, 
Cassian, back on Narcana 5, is feeling discombobulated as he waits in line to return to his quarters. He notices prisoners signing to each other from opposite-facing windows in the tubes that they're walking through. When he reaches his cell, Cassian learns that the floors are electrified at night. His fellow inmate shows him the food and water tubes and tells him that if he is at the most productive table, he'll get flavored food. But if he's at the least productive table, he's going to get zapped. So when Cassian looks out the window and then he sort of has that matrix point of view, like, whoa, there are, you know, this this world that I'm in is much bigger than uh, I initially thought. I had this thought like, okay, this is a factory, a production factory place. There's probably like an unnamed online retailer who would love to set up their warehouses with something like this. <laughs> Highly efficient, <laughs> uh, very clear rules of the game of productivity. <laughs> so You know what, Bezos? We'll stop talking smack about you when you make the Expanse seasons seven through nine. There you go. There you go. Um, but yeah, beautiful shot. Just amazing uh, to give us this scope and scale of this facility. Yeah. And what do you think is going on with this signing? Do you think this is some sort of prison rebellion? Or do you think that this is just friends talking to each other? I think it, my guess, it's, it's probably maybe a, a couple of guys who got um, rousted together. And so they're, you know, keeping touch with each other. But again, it's one of those things that Cassian's clocking. Just like the boots are here and the guys with the laser guns are there. He's like, oh, this guy can, you know, use sign language. Obviously, we've got to wait to see how they're going to employ that. But uh, certainly like one of those tools that uh, I think catalog or, uh, Cassian is cataloging. More than anything else he observed, you can see him visibly, re- visibly relax when he sees this. You think so? I thought so. I thought Cassian was much more relaxed after he saw this happening. I think he thought that maybe there is a way out. Huh, interesting. Um, I certainly did clock the fact that they had all just come from being zapped. Yeah. If they if you follow the line back up from where Cassian starts, all of his other table mates, they're all kind of standing there looking a little wobbly and a little shook. Man, that old man getting shocked every day. Yeah. He's probably not having a good time. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Also, again, again, just pointing back to it, the great editing use of contrast here between the cocktail party and Cassian and, and comparing Mon Mothma and Cassian, you know, Mon Mothma's in a kind of prison hell of her own, you know, this sort of thing that she's got to navigate Yeah. at the same time that Cassian's, you know, learning this new environment and, and he's sort of in an actual prison um, and he's having to put forward a false front as well. He doesn't want these people to know that he had somehow been involved with the rebellion uh, and what he's really doing there. And of course, he just came from, I mean, the last place he was before being processed was hanging out uh, with his new party friend. And the next thing he's on a transport to a prison planet. I think that Cassian knows if he lets slip that he's the reason that these prisoners are getting double Double sentences. Yes. Boy, oh boy, because they made clear that the prisoners are getting their sentences redone. Like the the prisoners in prison right now are getting their sentences doubled. P-O-R-D, public order, what is, oh, I I should. People order our patties. (laughs) That's D, D, not B. I I keep forgetting to write down the whole thing, but yeah, the the 
P-O-R-D gets name dropped like at least three times in this episode. So I, I thought that that was really interesting. And I loved, there's a quick callback to episode seven. That's one of the first things that we get is this, this new directive, the sentencing directive, right at the beginning of episode seven. And then at the end of episode seven, we have that in effect. And that's what gets Cassian six years instead of six months. Right. I think Cassian would have just served the six months if that's all he got. Yeah, I think he would have. I think I totally think he would have just coasted on uh, for six months, just sort of dried out a little bit. Yeah. Got his head cleared and, and then uh, and gone on his way. I did love at the end of the scene when Cassian is, you know, when they're uh, they're calling sort of for the lights out hot floor. And they're building the tension and we're like, Cassian, get off the floor, man. Yeah. Get off the floor. Get in your room. And then he steps into his room just as the red clicks over. And it was a great storytelling device to amp our tension. So they're slowly ratcheting up the storyline here as we go. And that was one of those little, almost a Hitchcockian style um, uh, knob twist to get us more on, our, on our, the balls of our feet. Another piece of irony, too, is while this is going on, we're getting intermingled uh, in sort of montage manner with uh, Mon Mothma hosting her dinner party. Somebody mentions to Mon Mothma, oh, well, if you didn't do anything wrong, why were you worried about P.O.R.D.? Oh, perfect. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. I mean, well, let's not say Cassian never did anything wrong, but he certainly didn't do anything wrong on the beach. Yeah, he certainly got jacked. Yep. And it was, it's a really great juxtaposition. And again, um, giving us the real feeling uh, of disconnect between the politico, the political class and the average class and what they're suffering under for this heightened security. Well, the emperor's job is to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, like you said, if, if you haven't done anything wrong, you've got nothing to fear. Well, we can, see the, we can see the direct results of that line of thinking. Well, they also highlighted it because... I, I forgot who asked Cassian, but somebody asked Cassian, what'd you do? And he said, nothing. And the person replied, well, we get a lot of those lately. Yes. Yep. Again, really, really tight storytelling here. Yeah. All right. So we time jump 30 shifts later and we see more of life in the prison with what passes for a shower in the empire. Cassian's team then struggles to maintain their productivity and uh, Kine gives Cassian a hard time. Yeah. I mean, that shower was super dehumanizing, right? Yeah. Another visual thing, I love the callback to the wall of gloves on Ferrix and to the wall of clothing here uh, as they come out of the shower. A lot of these edits, as you're pointing out to me, are really expert, and I did not notice them the first time, so I appreciate that you're pointing them out. <laughs> I'm enjoying... Uh, that, that's one of the things I'm enjoying about the show is, is how good the visual language is in, in this and what they're doing with it. It's, uh, it's, it's giving me a whole added dimension. Uh, that's really binding me more to the show every every episode that we get. Right. Uh, we got some feedback, which we'll touch on uh, later. But what do you think they're making here? The really satisfying answer is, of course, something that I've heard you posit, which is Death Star pieces. Yes, right? yes, yes. That's yes. the exciting answer. And that would be a lot of fun. And that would sort of give Cassian a leg up in the Rogue One storyline. I think that it could also be sort of the joints from the TIE Fighters. Interesting. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But those are basically the only two things that I can think of. I, it sort of looked like a drone to me at first. Okay. Which would make sense because they're upping the surveillance and they're ordering a lot of those probably. But, the, you know, the really satisfying answer is the Death Star. Wait, do you have any other thoughts, David? No, it just seemed very heavy and very structural to me. 
Um, you know, those are those are big, heavy parts, and they're they're putting them in tightly together um, for it to do something. So um, yeah. that's that's all I could think of. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, if you've got, you know, uh, if folks have theories, definitely jump on to our uh, Discord channel for Andor and maybe throw some uh, throw some inter- internet points down, and uh, we can see at the end of the season if uh, if we get any answers to that. Cool. All right, so we have to jump back to Ferex, where we see Brasso walking down the main street in front of the hotel where the Empire has set up. And Bix and Brasso attend to Marva, who is taken ill from playing at Rebellion. How good is Fiona Shaw? No, she's great in this. Um, I love that she sort of brushes off her illness, and I love that B2 is going, her knee hurts. <laughs> that, was, that was definitely cute. That's such, it's so reminiscent of a family where you have an aging parent and you yeah. have maybe yes. one, one adult child of the parent lives nearby and the other one is visiting and the one who lives nearby goes, no, she's actually not that good. This is what's wrong. Uh, and they'll actually tell you the truth where the mom is telling you not to worry. I feel like that's a, yeah. that's a situation that everybody sees in their family at some point. And it really rings true to us in the audience for sure in that way. And I think that makes us even more endeared to Marva. Uh, and B. Um, and it was so great to see Bix and uh, Brasso again. I, I was really excited. I was like, oh, yay, you know, like old friends. Don't get too excited for Bix. She has some bad places <laughs> to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely at the end of this scene. But just that look on Marva's face, uh, there's a moment of sort of humor and then sort of sadness. And you can sort of imagine her thinking about at least what this is what occurred to me was that she was wondering where, you know, Cassian was and that she was missing him. It's fun to see Cassian's crew. I like that Karn is saying uh, he obviously has a team on this planet. He's, he's part of this crime syndicate. He's a mastermind. And he's just got these two buddies who have no idea where he is, who are not involved at all with these plans. And they're actually more worried about him and worried about what he does than they are helping him. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just funny to see the pr- different perspectives on Cassian Andor. We have the criminal mastermind, according to Karn. Yeah. We have the... Uh, the usable, disposable person, according to Dedra. We have the son, according to Marva. And we have the friend, brother figure that you're worried about when you look at Bix. Yeah, that's a really good take. I hadn't thought of it that in that quite that same way, how the relationships that Cassian has with all of these people really give us, the viewer, a three-dimensional picture of who this person is. Because it'd be very easy for the show to fall into a hard-boiled trope or a noir trope where the uh, protagonist is just moving through the storyline and we're sort of on this simple journey with them. But this really gives us a much fuller picture of a real person dealing with real circumstances in a real world. But you can also see that sort of he's struggling in his own head. Like he doesn't really know what his his next step is. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, how he wants to use his skills. And yet all of these people have already decided who he is for him and in yeah. completely conflicting views. Like they, they're all filling in the blanks in different ways that don't add up together. So it's really it's, it's kind of an interesting study in how we view strangers. Yeah. Did you get the sense that while um, Cassian was on the um, beach planet, that he was a little bit unhappy and a little bit disheveled? He's kind of like the dog that caught the car. Like he's like, okay, I got my money. I'm I'm living it up here. But 
like it's not really as fulfilling as I was hoping it was going to be. I think he's been going through the motions since he's a, he's a kid. Uh-huh. You know, I think that it's nothing different just because he's in this uh, space Florida. Right. And, you know, he's going through a one night stand, it looks like. Yep. Uh, he's just going through the motions. He's going to go head to the store and be continue to be bored. I think that there's something deep inside him that knows that what Luthen and Marva are saying about there's got to be something bigger. I think at some point, at, at some part of his consciousness, he knows that that's true. Right. And he knows that at some point he's going to have to be involved with it. Maybe in his head he's like, well, this is going to come for me eventually. I may, I may as well enjoy it while it lasts. Right. So um, into the next scene, while Bix and Brasso talk outside of Marva's apartment, they're watched by Vel and Cinta, who discuss the needs of the movement versus their personal needs. Again, back-to-back scenes where we bringing, we're bringing back the Aldani crew uh, into this next story arc. What did you think? I thought it was good. Um, I, I think it was really interesting to see. That was such an interesting perspective that I don't think I've seen on screen before, which is, I'm here for you to the extent that it doesn't interfere with this greater good. Cinta's hard. <laughs> well, because we're always told these stories of like, you know, romance transcending these conflicts. Right. And Cinta's like, no, no, no. The conflict is the priority. The yeah. romance is whatever's left. I love how she put it that way. The, this is another one of these lines that the writers drop that just is sort of a, a script bomb. I'm a mirror. You love me because I show you what you need to see. Mm, yep. Boom. Like, oh my Lord. Like that is just wild. Uh, from a just that is just brilliant dialogue. And from Cinta's point of view, she's like, I'm all about this mission, and you know, what you're seeing is is what you need to hear. Yeah, no, I think that that, that was what Vel needed to hear, right? Like, even yes. in that moment, was, hey, stay focused for a minute. Get your head back in the game here. Like, we're on a, in a hostile environment, and we're on a mission. Right. I, I think that it's, it's so interesting to see, like, who's going to find Cassian first? Is it going to be Karn? Is it going to be Dedra? Is it going to be Vel? Is it going to be Clea? Et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> and I also love the fact that Luthen's own people are watching Luthen's own contacts, like... Right. You know, ostensibly, if Kel and Cinta and Bix and Brasso and even Marva all got together, they'd probably have a good time, you know, talk, you know, shit talking the, uh, the, the empire. Um, but yet, you know, in this really intense pre-rebellion state, nobody is above suspicion. Right. And I mean, throughout this episode, you're seeing a lot of good not trusting itself. Yeah. Right. And uh, again, we've, we've talked about that in previous episodes, which is you can take Tolkien's idea of evil cannot trust itself and apply that to the good here. And that's something that I've noticed in more recent media that people have been applying to. Like, it's not just people with bad intentions who have trouble trusting people. It's people who are trying to do the right thing in sneaky ways who also distrust people. Right. Exactly. All right. So then the, the next scenes um, kind of blend together. Bix goes to Pack's shop, where she uses the secret transmitter to try and call Luthen. Clea monitors Bix's transmission but doesn't answer, and then Clea convinces Luthen to shut down the operation on Ferex. Yeah, this was very sad, but I like that. First of all, I like that we got confirmation that Luthen is looking for Cassian too. This was not Clea going rogue, because we were speculating on that last episode. Yes, exactly. Now, do you think Luthen wants Cassian dead? 
Or do you think Luthen wants Cassian to come work for him more? I would guess that Luthen ideally would like to have Cassian working for him. But if Cassian had come back from the job and come back and found Luthen, and then they could figure out the next steps from there, I think, you know, then, then they could go along fine. And if Cassie, Cassian wanted to move off, you know, well, then who knows what would have happened. But, you know, I, I think that's what Luthen probably would have wanted. Because as he says to him in episode three, he's like, I know all about you. I've come for you. You know, I need you. So, yeah, he needed him just for the Aldani mission. But I think he, could, he, he sees that greater potential. However, now that he's quote unquote rogue, right? He's he's out, he's off, he's out of the operation and he's out of touch with Luthen's network. He's a threat to Luthen and I think Luthen might be maybe that's where Clea is giving him a hard time is like, dude, wake up. Your head is not in this game and that's because Luthen is con- uh, conflicted about how he feels about Cassian. I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm making that up a little bit more than what's there, but that's... No, I think you're right. I think that, I think you've read enough into it because Luthen makes a comment that I think he's sort of talking to himself and trying to convince himself something about Cassian, which is, as we get further into this, vulnerabilities are inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Cassian is a vulnerability, but you need to accept that vulnerability to move forward. Interesting, Yeah. And and Cassian or Luthen says as much as he's you know he's like oh I'm I've been hiding too much or too much in the shadows as they're coming out, um, you know as you come out you're going to be vulnerable. Yeah. All right. So next we have uh, Bix waiting in vain while Vel and Cinta continue to monitor events on Ferrix and Luthen plots and Luthen pilots his ship to the planet Segra Milo. This was a nice little montage. What did you think was going on with Vel and Cinta? Because I think I'm, I, I know what I think. Mm, I think that they're trying to figure out if these people have any idea what Cassian, where Cassian is. What do you think? Well, I think Vel is leaving. Like the planet? Yeah. Oh, I thought that he, she was just going to stay somewhere else on the planet. Yeah, no, I, she's on that transport that Luthen took, like from the spaceport to town. So, um, and she's sort of looking forlornly, and then they show Cinta looking through the louvers and then sort of drifting back, and they sort of cross, they do a soft fade, cross-dissolve between the two, and so to me, that visual language is very much about the fact that these two characters uh, are going to be distanced from each other again. That's my interpretation. Okay. No, I'm into that. That's a good one. Yeah. In the next scene, Cassian is woken up in his cell by the sound of another prisoner who kills himself by stepping out of his cell onto the electrified floor. And there was a debate, right? There was a debate. Did he fall out? Right. Or did he step on it? I think that that it's heavily implied that he stepped on it. Yeah, I I think so. And I think it goes to to showing sort of the despair that you can have in this very... They're they're well-fed. They're not harassed or bullied. They're well nourished. I don't know if I'd say they're well fed. Okay, they're well nourished. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. But you know how how soul crushing a environment like this could be. That certainly went through Cassian's head at that moment. Yeah, for sure. Rough times. So back on Ferrix, a crowd gathers outside Pack's shop. Bix asks Brasso what's going on. Imperial officers spot Bix in the crowd, and a chase ensues. 
Okay, so this is where I shouted out loud. I jumped out of my, I literally jumped out of my chair. Was the transition scene at the end of this scene and the beginning of the next scene where Bix is running through the crowd and then we cut to uh, Luthen's ship flying through space. It was such a brilliant transition that um, we're setting up sort of for the end of the episode. And so all of this energy is building and this sense of, of motion and, and the plot starting to move in these dynamic ways was really car- carried forward in, in the way that these two scenes were cut together. Hmm. That was a good transition. Uh, I loved how Brasso, he's sort of like, oh, excuse me, sir, pardon me, sir. Oh, sorry, he's trooper there. I got in your way. He was just sort of bumbling around to, to slow everybody down to ultimately to no effect. I'm surprised they didn't beat him up. They've been pretty heavy handed on the discipline lately. That's true. Brasso's smart. He's a clever dude, though. I really like because we saw him chain up that that tack pod, uh, you know, in the in episode three. And uh, he's doing this. He's a he's a clever guy. He's He's a smart operator. It's the little things that really fuel the rebellion. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, all right. Um, we jump then to the planet uh, Segra Milo, and we see a partisan fighter that we know as Benthic from the Rogue One movies, who's um, standing guard over a secret rebel base. Luthen and Saw Guerrera discuss the politics of rebellion while negotiating over equipment and plans to mount a joint operation against the Empire. So this Saw guy. Yeah. What's his deal? Um, I'm going to have to get more into the, the deeper lore on him, but he's been a big part of a lot of the, uh, I don't know where to draw the line on the canon, non-canon stuff. But he is a, a known and, and highly loved character in, in the Star Wars world. Obviously, we had him uh, in a little bit in Rogue One, not enough by a lot of people's standards. But I think when they had to do the reshoots, I think a lot of his storyline got cut. But as we can see, he's a very intense partisan fighter who has his ideas on what rebellion is and isn't. Well, you have this exact debate going on in political circles today where there are some people who want to do things more quickly and radically. And then you see people who are saying, well, how can we bring more people along, perhaps, but not achieve the full goal? And this debate between moderates and radicals within a single political faction is something that is so resonant today. Yeah. Uh, It was really great to see Saul Guerrera really taking to task all these other rebel leaders and sort of making fun of them because they're, you know, oh, this political belief or that political belief or, you know, he's he's not joking around. He's deadly serious about what he believes and his belief being the right and only belief. I think that Luthen is saying you need to moderate yourself and I need to radicalize myself and we need to meet somewhere in the middle here. Yes. And I think even in the Rogue One movies, there, there was talk of uh, Saw Gerrera being a radical element and, and somebody that the rebellion couldn't really trust. It's very tricky. How do you, how do you know the extent of your allies? That's, I, and I think that's what Luthen was trying to broker here, right? It was just like, well, you, you, know, you cover this part of the operation, the other guy covers this part of the operation, and when, you know, we, we strike a blow and we all are happy with uh, taking the fight to another level. But Saw Gerrera just doesn't want to legitimize any other faction by anything, like by, by hint or by deed. Yeah, um, it's a shame because you can see Luthen sort of offering to give up something on his end. But 
Saw is not anywhere near this negotiation in his head. He is, you know, you can either join me or you can go do your own thing. And and here again, another one of these, you know, awesome script bombs. Oppression breeds rebellion. Boom. Like another one where it was just like, wow. Right. There's Luthen's thesis, right? He's just like, we have to ratchet up the oppression to be able to, you know, get rebellion to actually happen. Yep. How good are Forrest Whitaker and Stellan Skarsgård together? Oh, they were great. I mean, that was just a battle of wits right there. It was beautiful. And I love the close-in, tight-up shots uh, uh, on each other. Uh, it was just like two very, very dangerous men negotiating uh, with each other, not only for like sort of an, uh, on an ideological front, but also on an operational and a business front as well. Uh, just the, the way the line deliveries and the, the looks on their faces, just absolutely incredible acting. Stellan Skarsgård in a wig. I want to take him to brunch, but Stellan Skarsgård, no wig. <laughs> Better watch out for that guy. All right. So next we have Bix being brought to the Imperial HQ on Ferex. Remember, they took over the hotel uh, where she's seeing Pack being taken out of an interrogation room. Bix is greeted by Dedra. I love Dedra's little play acting here. They're like, do you want him in here or, or out of the room? And she's like, no, in the room. But then when they bring her in, she's like, what are you fools doing? Get him out of here. Like really great good cop, bad cop kind of stick. And it worked. Like you saw the shock value yes. on Bix's face. Absolutely. And then just that cold way she says, hello, Bix. Like she knows her, like she's an old friend of hers, you know, that she hasn't seen in a while. Terrifying. And then just gently gestures to the chair. Yeah, where Pack was just, you know, removed. It, it, was a, it was devastatingly effective. Very scary. So the episode ends with a scene of Cassian's prison labor crew working on the factory floor. And this was another ending that caught me by surprise. I was not expecting the episode to drop out at this point. The way that they punctuated the end of the episode as well, the, the, the sort of um, emotional energy with the door, the, the scene change between Bix going into this interrogation room and Cassian being in prison with the mechanical door shutting on Bix, transitioning into the lift of the part, the, the, the machine lift, uh, the machine lifting the part up onto the work table. The sound and the energy really combined to create a, a, a really strong emotional resonance. And then, yeah, we pan back and then boom, end, you know, end scene. It was just, I, I was just left stunned and, and emotionally just like, what just happened? What did I just watch? Yeah, it was a really cold ending and it really hit hard. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, John, we've got some, we got a good uh, section of listener feedback uh, this time around. First up, Brian J. Brian says, something that's been going through my head as I watch Andor is that I'm enjoying the tone of the show and the hard-boiled nature of Cassian so much that I feel like I'd like to see more of him in this world than they have planned uh, f to show us. I had the same thought with Better Call Saul, but at least in that world, we knew Saul was alive in the future so this world could be expanded. 
We know that Cassian's story starts to end when Rogue One begins, but do you think it would uh, spoil the show if we took longer getting to that point than the two seasons that Disney has planned? Interested to hear your thoughts. I think that two seasons is a good length. I think that a show is best when it has a planned ending and when you have a planned scope. So, for example, when I heard that House of the Dragon was planned for three seasons, I was very happy to hear that. And when I heard Rings of Power was planned for five seasons, I actually thought that was a little bit long, but I was happy that they at least had a way that they wanted to divide this story. If the showrunners here, if Tony Gilroy thinks that he can tell this story effectively in two seasons, then that's all I want. Uh, I, I don't want anything extra. But if he looks at this and he says, you know what, I have a few more ideas. I'd like to get that out. I trust him with this show. After watching these eight episodes, I trust him to decide what is best for this character. <laughs> what do you think, David? Right. I think when we look at something like The Walking Dead, which is finally coming to an end after, what are they, there's three parts to this 11th season or something? I don't know. It's crazy. Just call it, just call it three seasons. Like, I, <laughs> exactly. Hold on. Hold on. I need, to, I need to rant for a minute. Can we stop? Can we stop splitting up seasons by like months and years? and calling it the same season. Can we just call it separate seasons and they're shorter? I, I, I don't understand this. What, what is this marketing? Oh, it's the last season. It's not the last season. There's two more seasons after this. Shut up. <laughs> I agree. My spleen empty? My spleen is empty. Not even at Star Wars. This wasn't even a Star Wars thing. Right. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think it's just some silly marketing stuff, and I, I don't really understand from a storytelling point how that works. I guess you get to do the final season marketing three times then. Yeah, basically. But yeah, I, I'm hopefully, I too, I, I remember at the end of Rogue One going, like, I had that feeling, which is what I think started the show, which is, what, wow, this Cassian character is so compelling and so interesting that I want more. And so they, they gave us more. And I don't think you could do more with Cassian. But what I'm hopeful for, and, and as we've been sort of uh, talking about lightly throughout our coverage, is that this will open up the Star Wars universe to this other level and style of storytelling where we can see more compelling characters like Cassian that are dimensional, um, as opposed to just sort of a, a, a simple black and white caricature. I want an old Republic show. That would be interesting. And I want it to be political, and I want it to be Game of Thronesy. Um, I know that there's a video game coming out uh -huh. in the next couple of years, although that's been in the air because they switched the developer somehow. I, do, I don't even know how that works, Right, where it's supposed to be one of those sort of like telltale games where you go through and you make choices rather than do a lot of gameplay. And I believe that's supposed to be set in the Old Republic, but I want a TV show like Andor set in that highly political environment at the height of this society. I'd watch it. So next up in our listener feedback, we've got Eric H. Um, Eric wrote in a slightly, uh, we kind of prompted him to write this one because he was talking some stuff on on the Discord. And, and so this I, was a solicited essay. This was a totally, <laughs> an, an essay and it is, uh, but it's very useful and very helpful. So Eric, thank you so much for writing in. Eric says, so basically, so the whole question was around the, the timeline and where does Andor fit in and how does the Star Wars universe use their dating structure? So he says, basically, the timeline starts at the year zero. The events of the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, and the destruction of the Death Star. It then moves backwards or forwards through time, denoting that time as either before the Battle of Yavin, BBY, 
or after the Battle of Yavin, ABY. So Eric did some math for us and explained that in the Rogue One visual guide, Cassian is stated to be 26. It implies that he was doing petty separatist acts as early as six or seven years old. The show has a different story. He's about nine years old on Kanari. Uh, and Eric's math shows that in Andor, he's probably about 31, making him about 36 in Rogue One. And so his, his uh, backstory that the government has, that the corporate structure has, was actually just a cover. And that's why you're able to have this discrepancy and still have it be canon. Yeah, so some really nice lampshading, as Eric points out, uh, by the showrunners to sort of fix the the information we had from the Rogue One movie uh, relative to the show story that we're getting on television here. So yeah, good job. So Sarah from Denver says, just came here to say David's opinion is the right one. Rogue One is the best of the new Star Wars movies. Maybe as good as Return of the Jedi, in my opinion. I squealed in excitement when he said that was his favorite also, I hate to say it, but Andor is better than Rings of Power. I was really excited for Rings of Power, but man, Andor rocks. Just came here to excitedly say these things. Keep up the good work. I have a new best friend, Sarah from Denver. Look at Thank that. you so much. Look at that. <laughs> I'm proven right, John. I'm right for once in my life. Somebody in this world believes me. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Besties. Fist bump. Thanks for writing in. Our next email is from Wake Harper, says, uh, Hi, Lorehounds. Thanks for all the time and energy you're putting in. My wife and I started listening with the Rings of Power and greatly enjoyed and largely agree with your takes on it. Oh, they see, there you go. People will agree with you too, John. Yeah. Here's our uh, email about uh, Colonel Yularen, the senior ISB officer, is a character in the Clone Wars cartoon as Admiral Yularen. Oddly, he changed careers from the Navy to the Intelligence Service. He was also retconned to appear as an Imperial officer in the first Death Star, identified by the distinctive white uniform jacket in the meeting with Darth Vader and Tarkin. So there you go. It's a nice link with previous Star Wars canon. Karn also reminds me of Arnold Rimmer from Red Dwarf, for anyone who remembers that. Uh, and he agrees on the Severance vibe and Loki too, which is, I totally uh, agree on, on the Loki. Love the Andor show. Wake. Yes. Uh, totally a Rimmer vibe from Red Dwarf. I haven't seen Red Dwarf in years. Used to see it a lot. I, I don't have a lot of memories. I, a lot of brain cells uh, were, were, were brutally murdered during that period of my life while Red Dwarf was on, but I did watch a lot of it. I have not seen Red Dwarf. It's, a, it's obscure. It's, it's British stuff, it's, but it's, it's very good. It's very funny. Uh, low budgety sort of Doctor Who style. Okay. Well, maybe I would like yeah. it. I did like Doctor Who. Well, thank you for the background on you, Lauren Wake. Now, my question is, what, what does Wake mean by uh, retconning? Does, did they just rename a character, or did they have a George Lucas CGI edit in 2000? <laughs> I think there was... I'd, I'd have to go back and actually rewatch Star Wars, the, the first Star Wars movie. But I think when they pan around that room, there's like one dude... Everybody is sort of in Navy uniforms, and then here's this one dude in a white uniform. And then I think what somebody else did was like, wait a minute, who's that guy? And then they plucked him out and then like made up a backstory for him. Okay. Wake, if you want to write in again and let us know, you let us know. Next up, we've got Sam. Hey, fellas. Very excited that you guys have started your Andor coverage. I can't say that I was very high on this show before the first episode due to the most recent Star Wars projects, but boy, has that changed. 
My general thoughts on Andor so far echo common sentiment on the impeccable writing and the excellent cast of actors that are able to execute said script. I find myself normally unamused by or feeling a lack of tension in these prequel shows, but Andor has flipped that on its head. Episode 8 highlights all these aspects with Mon Mothma's financing struggles, Luthen's character arc, and Cassian's pure terror when he goes from hanging out on a beach one moment to captivity in the Empire. I can't say how many times a show will feel the need to tell an audience explicitly that a character is scared, but to watch it through Cassian's expressions was just perfect. To end, to credit to the writers who have constructed a beautiful story focused on each one of their protagonists, and even though we know where some of these characters end up and that the Empire eventually falls, I'm hooked to watch it unfold, and I think that's a major success. I think, Sam, you are uh, among friends here. We're total, in total agreement with you on this. And uh, yeah, the, the script writers, the, the writers on this are just knocking it out of the park. Yeah. I like what Sam was saying, too, about distrusting Star Wars shows. I was skeptical about this. When you pitched this to me, David, yeah. you said, let's cover this Star Wars show. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> uh, both Marvel and Star Wars shows give me the heebie-jeebies right. when I look at them. Uh, just because of the recent quality dips. But this show has made me at least be willing to check out the first Star Wars show that comes, especially if it has Tony Gilroy at the helm again. Yeah, I think uh, I was... Uh, obviously, Rogue One, as, um, as uh, Sarah and I agree that it's uh, the best Star Wars film. Um, when I saw the first trailer for this, I was just jumping out of my skin with excitement because the vibe was totally different um uh, from you know obi-wan from book of boba from uh the mandalorian it it felt like a whole different class unto itself uh the story that they were gonna the, tell us and so yeah i'm uh, i'm super excited that we're um able to uh have something like this in our star wars world yeah no me too next up we've got mike uh, Mike says, I started listening when you first began your Rings of Power lore pre-release episodes. Well, thanks, Mike, for sticking around and have enjoyed all of your Rings of Power coverage since. Again, double thanks. Um, he says, I'm really looking forward to your Wheel of Time coverage, and I'm really hoping that you do a similar lore history overview leading up to season two. Wheel of Time has such a rich lore, and I'd love to listen to you discuss its people, histories, cultures, and legends leading up to the season. Mike, yeah, yeah. so A, a, this is not an Andor feedback, but I wanted to throw it in uh, regardless and just say, yes, Mike, that is exactly what we're planning. And thank you for sticking around. And we are certainly looking forward to you coming along with us for Wheel of Time Season 2 when Amazon gives us a release date. Yeah, I just want to add to that. We will definitely do some preseason coverage. I'm working on securing an interview for it to go a little bit deeper into the lore. Um, and I, I know that we're going to do a season one recap, not a full recap of every episode, but we're going to at least discuss our thoughts on season one. I don't think that we're going to have a second age style preseason coverage only because a big part of the joy of the wheel of time is the slow reveal of things that happened in earlier ages. And so whereas Tolkien has more bullet points, you actually have a really beautiful exposition of the history of Wheel of Time and the Age of Legends and other earlier eras. So I, I don't want to ruin that for everybody, but we will definitely have some kind of preseason coverage. 
Did you, uh, there was this new book that's coming out. Uh, I think it's in pre-release right now. Yeah, Origins of the Wheel of Time. I've got that pre-ordered. Yeah, good for, <laughs> I was wondering if you would. Um, do you think for a non-book reader like me, being a lore houndy type of guy, is that something I should look into? Or is that something I should stay away from? Uh, so, or, or maybe read along. Maybe I can, I can read along as we go. I don't know if it's stru- structured that way. You know, I really don't know how deep he goes into the spoilers of the series. Okay. We can see. I'll let you know. How about this? I'll let you know after I read it. Sounds good. That, that sounds like a good plan. Because uh, I'd be happy to get it to help us uh, with our lore analysis as we go forward. Well, the idea of that book is that uh, rather than being like a history of the Wheel of Time universe, because there, there's already a book like that. I, I forgot what it's called, but uh, Robert Jordan's wife put it together. Uh-huh. He actually goes into the inspiration behind the different cultures, behind uh, the different sort of mythologies that are involved, real world mythologies. And that's super cool to me, but I I guess it doesn't need to be spoilery, but it probably will be in some way. Right. Well, maybe it'll be like a companion kind of come along, like maybe if it's encyclopedic, you know, it can pull, you know, uh, reference it uh, as we go along. And you know what? If you don't want to read it, we'll be here giving you some details. (laughs) That's right. There you go. All right, last up, we have uh, an email from Gnarls. He was also on the Discord and said this. He says, Howdy, Lorehounds. What are the prisoners being forced to produce on Narkina 5? Initially, I thought it was the torso of a K2SO droid, but I'm not too sure. If indeed it's a K2SO uh, production line, could this intimate knowledge of the droid model be where Cassian learns how to deprogram the Empire out of them? Uh, I think that's an interesting theory, but I think... I don't know. I didn't get uh, vibes of it being a, a KX-style droid at all. I thought it was something much more of a structural support. You know how in Westworld they have the hosts and then they have, like, I guess, dumbed-down machines? I feel like mm-hmm. they're making a dumbed-down machine here. Really? I don't think that they're making anything like a droid where it's basically sentient. Right. But we could be wrong because we have no idea what these pieces are. I think one thing that's really interesting, and we didn't really talk about this, is the separation and isolation of these different rooms where they're making uh, a piece. We have no um, idea if they're making the same thing or if they're making right. a bunch of different parts that actually go together. And right. part of the isolation that Cassian's feeling is he's given a task where he doesn't know the end result. And so that feels pointless. It's like sort of if you're in high school and you're taking algebra and you have no idea how that fits into calculus and then you finally take calculus and you see why you needed to know all these cassian will never get that he only sees what is right in front of him and it just feels like menial useless labor just for the sake of labor right which is why they have to gamify it because uh, otherwise it would just be uh, too too tedious for the human mind to, to deal with right my comment would be uh it it's not why I needed um, uh, algebra to learn calculus. It was like why I needed algebra to begin with. But that's another story. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thanks for sending in all your emails. We really do appreciate them. You can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com. And yes, we are covering the show uh, in, in its entirety now. So every episode, we are going to be podcasting about it. So keep those feedback emails coming. Uh, find us on the Bald Move Discord server if you want to chat a little bit more real time. And again, you can get early access and ad-free access to all these episodes by signing up for our Patreon. But we're happy to have you on the public feed if this is working for you. We'll see you the next time. 
The Indoor Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>